Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Professor Overstreet. Senior Junior Lecturer Spellingbound. Time for a story? That's why we're at... It bit me. Yeah, it's a feisty one. It's Dating Callie, My Sweet, by Alex Kirtland. Ah, sharp teeth. You have no idea. Where'd this little piece of knip shit come from, anyway? Bushwick, I think. Sort of had to chase it around for a while. It likes playing hard to get. Let's hear it. Dating Callie, My Sweet, by Alger Bliss. I was very specific in my profile. I wanted a woman with four arms, blue skin, a frightening aspect, and loved the movies of Woody Allen. At first I was worried I was being too specific, but within a week I had six winks from ladies meeting my specifications. After discarding five of them for various reasons, not scary enough, misrepresenting the number of arms she possessed, liking not loving Woody Allen, I settled on a divorcee named Kali, who lived in Sunset Park. We arranged to meet at Jimmy's Mushu Pork and Beans, a local hot spot. The evening progressed normally, for once. I talked about my mother, my sister, my sex life with animals, and she was mostly mute, a good listener, which is so important. I told a joke, really one of my best, and instead of laughing, she crushed my pinky fingers between her molars, which I took to mean she liked it. And then the flan came. It was overcooked and barely edible, the consistency of styrofoam. Kali called the waiter over, and before he could apologize and offer us drinks on the house, she disemboweled him. There was some commotion at first, but as the flames licked the ceiling, something heavenly happened. She was nibbling on his entrails, and a sort of goofy, innocent, insouciant grin appeared on her face, enhanced by the fire in the background. As she smiled and licked the blood off her fangs, it hit me like a thunderbolt. I might actually like this lady. Then the bill came, and she insisted on paying. I was seriously falling for her. After eating Jimmy, we went to, what else, a Woody Allen movie. My favorite, Annie Hall. In the middle of the movie, I finally decided to make my move. I put my arm around her and breathed slowly into her ear, a move I'd been taught by my grandfather. She smiled and put three of her arms around me. We were so strangely alone. So I playfully bit her earlobe. Then I kissed her on the cheek. Then, becoming more daring, I aimed a kiss at her lips. She pulled back at first but her eyes were agleam, and she placed her teeth over my nose and bit it off. Wow, what a swell surprise! Our next day took us to the Statue of Liberty. On the boat ride back, she decapitated everyone on board, including the captain. 
We ran aground in New Jersey and found a nice Italian restaurant. Over tiramisu, I looked into her eyes and said something I'd only ever said to my mother. You look ravenous. Tiramisu rolled off her tongue, and again there was that special connection, like people in love feel for each other or starving people feel for a ham sandwich. She put her four hands around my neck and began to strangle me. She likes me, I thought. Then she ripped off my ears and added them to her necklace. The blood flowed, and we lapped it up. The third date was epic. Trust me on this. It started at a party in Bay Ridge. After an hour, she started cutting people's fingers off, and I could sense she was getting bored. I tore the heart out of the host, but that did nothing to perk her up or the party. So we went to a club where I'm known. I paid the maitre d' $12 to give us the best table in the house. After Kali skewered everyone in the kitchen, we sat down. Things still didn't seem quite right with her, and I asked her, Honey Bear, what's wrong? Tears gathered at the edges of her wild black eyes, and I thought, here it comes. I'm finally seeing the emotional heart of this gorgeous lady. But she said nothing, clapped an iron ring around my neck, and dragged me onto the dance floor. From then on, everything was a whirl. Kali breathed fire from her mouth. She pranced around the dance floor with the head of the DJ. She swung me around, knocking other people down with my body. I'd never had so much fun in my life. What a change of mood. But wait. We got into a taxi cab and went to the Brooklyn Promenade. The moon hung low over Manhattan. Bats swarmed above us. Kali whipped them into a squeaking frenzy. And then climbed a tree to terrify strollers underneath for my amusement. With crows all around us picking at the dead, we kissed, her tongue flowing deep into my mouth like lava, her fangs gouging holes into my cheeks. A sort of coldness came over us, gripping us like ice, the opposite of passion, but inverted on itself again. Passion squared, cubed, diced. The nearest taxi wasn't near enough. In the cab, she started gnawing on my arm. By the time we reached her apartment, she had chewed it off and was sucking marrow from the bone. There's a joke here, but I'm too much of a gentleman to make it. Anyway, she dragged me from the taxi by my hair, pulled me through the front door, and threw me onto the couch. Before I knew it, the other arm and a leg were lying on the floor like hastily removed clothing. I lost an eye somewhere, but I could still see. Her hands were all over me, two of them tugging at my remaining leg. We were going at it like Tarzan and Jane, and I felt transported to a new plane of existence, one I'd never visited before, every nerve ending screaming like a wailing baby. She was peeling my skin off in long strips and lighting them on fire. My one eye rolled back into my head, and I could feel an explosion imminent. She stood over me. Glorious in her nakedness, robust, ample breasts covered in my blood, sword in hand. And this moment is seared into my brain forever. So amazing. She raised her sword, glowing and shimmering, an instrument of true love. And she cut my head off. Bliss. After that, something changed in our relationship. Despite our best efforts, we could never quite recreate the... How can I describe it? 
emotional flambeau of that evening. We tried chopping me up into little bits, burning ourselves alive, and pulling me apart on a rack. But nothing worked. Even the slow extraction of my teeth with pliers couldn't bring a smile to her delicate face. Her frustration was palpable. Finally, after suggesting we go to a succubus for counseling, she could take it no more, and flung me from the Verrazano Bridge. As I fell, she opened up a portal through time and space, and I went through it and was transported to the far end of the universe. I spent eons there, and I wouldn't have minded it so much, but no internet. Since I've been back, I see her around occasionally. She has a new boyfriend, of course. He's muscular and carries a hammer. Whenever I see him, I want to ask him to tamp down some nails. Maybe he's nice, but what does Kali see in him? Me, I dug up some dead girlfriends, tried the dating scene again. But no one has Kali's magic and understanding. Every time I yell at a girl, rip my heart out, they take it the wrong way. Alex Kirtland is a Brooklyn-based writer of poetry and speculative fiction. He is currently at work on a novel about witches and magic. You can follow updates about his work and read his poetry at www.tumblr.com forward slash blog forward slash Rhino Leaps. Rish Outfield is a writer, audiobook narrator, and podcaster who is host of the Parsec Award-winning Doomsteef Audio Fiction Magazine. He is fond of frogs, Mr. Pibb, Ben Affleck, and has just written his first novel. Rish once went to Amity Island in order to cause a panic on the 4th of July, but accidentally yelled Barracuda instead of Shark. It's true what they say. Nobody reacted. Hey, look, Sam. James wrote us a letter. Really? I love letters. What's it say? It says... Evening, nerds. I really wish he'd stop calling us that. I hope this letter finds you well. Now, I hope you don't... No, no, you're doing it wrong. James sounds more like, uh, I hope this letter finds you well. Like that. No, no, it's it's more like, I hope this letter finds you well. Hey, that's pretty good. Uh, carry on. Hopefully by now you've finished doing your impressions. Oh, crap. As I was saying, I know you don't get out of Brooklyn very often, but even you may know that there are 8.3 million people in New York City, at least. That's what it was the last time anybody stopped to check. Still, the subway is one of the quietest places in the world, even at rush hour. All those people in black suits, all those untold stories just going to waste. It's sad, really. But then I realized the quiet was not silent, because there is still the train itself. The shish-shish and chum and chime of the train is, is the second language of strap hangers, and they are listening to its story on the commute back and forth from work. I think it makes them hopeful, or maybe they're quiet also because they're keeping this hope to themselves. It took some time, but I translated the story into English and wrote it down for you. 
here in this letter. You know my usual fee. PayPal it to me. James. Squeeze by Rob Cameron Things shattered against the wall or burned. Two stolen I messed with Texas shot glasses. Photos of us at your niece's graduation. Seashells you found in the middle of that parking lot in Great Neck. My empty Red Hot Chili Pepper CD case you borrowed years ago. Your panties under my bed. The smoke detector, in short bursts, screeched. I stopped speaking. In the morning I would dress myself, chin to chest, fumbling with buttons, head bowed like the lilies on your casket, and take the seven train from Grand Central to where you used to live in that ancient duplex on the corner of Cherry Avenue in Flushing, last stop. That's where we had chilled on your landlord's bleach porch swing with our feet up drinking red stag whiskey in every kind of weather. That's where, in your own quiet way, you tried to prepare me for the inevitable. You asked me to believe in ghosts. Since you weren't here anymore, there was no reason to get off the train, so I'd wait for it to fill with bodies and ferry me back to Manhattan, unable to move forward or back. This became my life for maybe a hundred years. Time moves differently on the seven. Passing under the Lethean waters of the East River eroded my memory until I couldn't see your face or smell your hair. Terrified, I listened for your voice, but it was drowned out in the dull roar of rush hour. One morning, as the train emerged at Vernon Boulevard, Queens, a stinging sensation seared the crown of my skull, forcing me to aggressively attend to the smallest, most perfect details. At Queensboro Plaza, light traveled broken paths through the scratched, stained windows and became prismatic streamers of blue, purple, and gold. Bruised tangerines scattered through space like cooling stars born from the bursting scarlet plastic bag of an elderly Chinese couple at Roosevelt, bloodying the air with tart aromas. Squat, graffitied rooftops were a fast-moving dream coming into focus while neck muscles strained against the subtle pull of gravity, and the train came to a full and complete stop at Junction Boulevard. The doors shushed open, and all the queens flooded in, eager to escape the briars of a New York summer. Everyone had an unhealthy sheen to them, beaded with many vernal pools. The sudden influx of heat and mass made my teeth ache with stomach-turning vertigo. As my vision doubled, a little ghost boy ducked under the turnstile and appeared in the train. The doors chimed, shushed together, and we moved. The ghost child blinked in and out of existence. Every time he reappeared, I had to remember him all over again, like catching the tail of a fleeing dream. At first, I would be watching a square of light crinkle in color like tinfoil as it drifted through the car. Then a baby would cry, and the light became the ghost boy, going through people's bags or sitting on an old woman's lap. The train was crowded. Plump Ecuadorian children and their parents pressed shoulder to moist shoulder, weighed down by carriages and carts of groceries. 
He slipped among them and pulled the pacifiers from sleeping babies and tried to lift them from their seats. He finger-painted messages from the dead into the grime of the window. Sometimes he used his face. He danced around the pole singing at the top of his lungs, which sounded like the screech of the train wheels going around a turn at incautious speed. I knew I wasn't hallucinating because it wasn't you. Also, it's difficult to even imagine ghost children. The two words juxtaposition cry out for a comma between them or a period. A division of ideas in the same way I thought there'd be a barrier between life and death. Although calling it a child might be misleading. It turned once and looked right at me, one eye glaring white, while the other was a hole, impossibly deep. I wondered... Why could I see him when nobody else could? Then I remembered, near-death experiences can shift your perspective. Losing you had almost killed me. The ghost child climbed up next to some woman and knelt on the bench, facing the window. The woman had one arm, the other was gone at the elbow. I noticed her in the same way I noticed anyone on the subway. There was a process, awareness, speculation, judgment, and ignorance. Awareness. She was tall and brittle, skin made of a dark, non-native graphite. Her eyes were chips of old bronze. I could tell she'd been happy once. Recent fossils show dinosaurs had feathers. There were imprints in the stone. Feathers meant color. She was like that, imprinted by happiness. Speculation. I imagined her homeland was once a place where everyone sang everything, everywhere they went. Then disaster struck. She tried to escape on a boat that was over capacity. It tipped and she'd chosen to live. So she swam to shore through the floating bodies of loved ones and strangers. And now she rode my seven train. To the last stop. Judgment. I didn't like her because she would take up two seats. Because she wasn't big enough or crazy enough to deserve two seats. Because I looked at her and thought, Bomber. Nigeria is experiencing a rash of female bombers, said some CNN breaking news crawl somewhere. Ignorance. After a while, she had become background and my eyes passed over her, flattening her like the ads for 1-800-immigrant-legal-services I didn't need, surgical body hacks I couldn't afford, and postcard-sized notes stuck in the seams of the subway maps warning of Jesus's wrathful second coming neither of us believe in. I'm sure everybody noticed me in the same way. The woman slid over and made room for the ghost child. He turned around and took her hand or where her ghost limb would have been. She squeezed with her other fist, but you can imagine. A small sound escaped from both hers and my open lips and her face, which had been a desert, briefly flooded with grace. She looked through me, eyes glistening with tears that welled but did not fall, and before I could blink them away, I was crying. I realized then that we had been on the same commute for years.
She'd been squeezing her fist just like this every evening at exactly this time between junction and flushing. Of course she'd always been able to see him. I wondered what else she had lost along with her arm. I wondered what else she could see. Suddenly, I found that I'd pushed through the crowded train and was standing in front of them. I see him too, I said. The boy, she said, unafraid of me, her voice precisely carving out each syllable. I thought I was the only one, we both said at the same time. Is he your son? I could tell she wanted terribly to say yes. I don't know what he is. She searched my face for answers and finding none, sighed. The train pulled into flushing and emptied. A young couple laughed and the boy was gone. I stood over her in awkward silence, neither of us used to speaking. She got up and walked past me, then she turned back at the door. How sad is it that we need the dead to connect to the living? She left before I could answer, and the seven began to fill back up with vibrant beings. But I smiled, because I'm sure that's something you would say. Rob Cameron is an elementary school teacher and writer living in Brooklyn. When he's not writing stories or organizing events for the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, he is rock climbing, dragon boating, and working on his Buddha-like glow. You can find his work in Mike Allen's upcoming Clockwork Phoenix 5. John Hosh is an actor who recently was a performer and puppeteer in the North American tour of Warhorse, as well as performing in the show's Asian debut in Tokyo, Japan. He is the artistic associate of Vampire Cowboys Theatre Company. He recently participated in the 2015 Jim Henson Company Diversity Puppetry Workshop. He also has worked with Mai Theatre, Two River Theatre Company, American Globe Theatre, 2G, and Premier Stages, to name a few. Find out more at johnhosh.com, J-O-N-H-O-C-H-E dot com. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland-McLean as Dawn Fairweather-Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors. Thank you.